Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to the Parsha in my life class, tonight's class. I want to dedicate to my dear friend whose Yorzeit is tonight, first Yorzeit, Rabbi Avram Aaron Ben Rabbi Yitzchak Plotkin. Um, may his soul have the greatest aliyah to the greatest of heights. May he channel us all the blessings from above. And may he help us spread divine wisdom that was and is the passion of his life. Um, and may his family only know joy and happiness from now and on. May he look after his family with great love from above. And maybe they be reunited with him very soon as all souls are going to come down over here. Anybody, that's my dedication, anybody that wants to dedicate this class, um, a very deep class, a very energetic class, and a very rich class, I'm excited about today's class. Um, although the topic seems to be like negative, but actually it's going to be a very happy class, a very uh, positive class, because we'll understand that we're seeing, I call the class, Why is the Jew Hated? Um, which seems to be negative, but really if you dig a little deeper, we understand that uh, it's a symptom of something awesome, which is going to dissipate soon. So anybody that wants to dedicate this class, and uh, help support the center and all the good that we do over here, please just go to our website, myon.com, and over there you can um, follow the donate and do your dedication and claim it retroactively. All right. So, obviously we're watching in the world some very, very intense resurgence of anti-Semitism. It's couched in anti-Zionism, of course, as anti-Semitism always covers itself up with all kinds of different forms. But it's always anti-Semitism. And um, it's pretty, it's been pretty intense, you know. Um, and obviously, the question is why, because Jews have not been the worst people in the world, as we know. We try to um, look into all the contributions in science and medicine, in faith, in philanthropy, in, 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 in technology, in, in every area, in arts, in every area that has improved and brought mankind so much goodness, so much is owed to the small amount of Jewish people that there are in the world. Imagine that, less than 2% of the world population, and so much goodness, so much goodness. And yet the Jew has always been singled out, kind of to be hated, to be persecuted, and to be chased around. Like someone put it uh, the other day, which I just saw, um, someone sent me a clip, I forgot, I don't even know who was speaking, but he mentioned something. He said, you know, throughout all of history, when Jews were in the diaspora for the last 2,000 years wandering, the, the nations of the world, the host countries, told the Jews, not everyone, but many of them, or many people in many of these countries, told the Jews, go back to where you come from. Go back to where you come from. What are you doing in our country? You're not Spanish. You don't belong here. You're not British. You don't belong here. Jews were kicked out of Britain. Jews were kicked out of France. You're not French. You don't belong here. Jews were kicked out of Spain. Jews were kicked out of different places in Germany. And Jews were always on the run. And then when we weren't kicked out somewhere, we were wiped out, right? We were sent to the crematoriums, to the, to the gas chambers. 
This has been a long history. Why we've been giving the world so much light and so much great things. Everybody said, go back to where you come from. So now when we went back to where we come from, they say, no, no, that's not your land. Get out of there. <laughs> it's as if Jews may not step on the soil of the planet Earth. And if there's no Jews on planet Earth, then all these anti-Semites, which happens to be millions, a lot of them, will breathe a sigh of relief. But it ain't happening because the Jewish people are older than creation and the Jewish people will last for all of eternity if we can say past creation because Jews and God are one. And just like God is, was, and will be, and he's indestructible, the Jewish people are indestructible. So if there's any anti-Semite listening to this, you can call all your friends and say the rabbi said that all your attempts is futile. It's not going to work. It's not going to help. You kill a Jew here, you harm a Jew there, and all this. We're here to stay forever and ever. And it's not a bad thing because we're only here to make this world a much better place. Take the Jew out of the world and you've basically extinguished the soul of creation. And it's not because I'm a Jew. Yes, I am a Jew. Very feel very fortunate I'm a Jew. Not only am I a Jew, I'm a Kohen. So from within the Jewish people, I come from the most important family. Fathers, 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 father was Aaron, the high priest, who is commanded in this week's Torah portion to ignite, to light the menorah and light up the world. But I'm not saying it because, you know, obviously I'm saying it because I'm Jewish, but it's not my choice. It's not my grandfather's choice. It's not my grandmother's choice. It's not any of our choice. So is the choice of the creator of the universe. That he was going to actualize his will through a people. And, the, and his will is going to be brought and to bring blessings to all of humanity, to all of the world, while the Jewish people have been persecuted and suffered, 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 and chased. And yet, you have the skin, you know, if you think about it, for an anti-Semite who, 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 who's been bent on destroying Israel, destroying the Jewish people again and again and again and again, if you just think about it, how a nation came from the ashes of the Holocaust, six million Jews, suddenly in three, four years, eliminated from the plan. And we're talking about a people that were 14 million or something like that. So you take away six million, you're talking about half, half the Jewish population. And entire communities decimated, destroyed, gone, completely obliterated and yet the one or two survivors of these people come here to the shores of America and come across the world and rebuild and rebuild look at this look at the look at the state of Israel look at the, look look how it's rebuilt look on so what I'm just saying is that those who think you're going to obliterate the Jewish people they realize it's 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 just a frustrating endeavor because it's not going to happen not going to happen because when you start up with the Jew, he only gets stronger. He only gets stronger, not because I'm strong. I meet you in the street, you might be much stronger than me physically. I don't exercise enough. I don't. <laughs> I should, <laughs> but I don't. Um, it's not because, it's because, because he has invested in us. He's invested himself in us. He's bond up with us with an eternal bond. 
and you can't erase the creator because the creator is the source of you. He's the one who makes you breathe and gives you every breath. He's the one who creates every cell in your body. Those very cells that hate the Jewish people, that hate his children, the very thought that you're thinking all day long and your heart filled with anger and rage against Israel, against Jews, and against those very energy of your entire being, your entire psyche, all of history, all the past, present, and future, every bit of power, everything you have is all created by that creator, not a long time ago, but this very second, he brings all of existence ex nihilo, from nothing into existence. So you want to destroy him? He's made his promise to Israel that no nation will ever destroy us, and we will be a light onto the nations. So we're here to stay, and we're here forever, and we say it proud, and we're not afraid. We're not afraid of anyone. Thank God we have a history to prove it, that we survive, and we survive all of our enemies, and all the enemies that have tried to trample on the Jewish people and to bury the Jewish people. They don't exist anymore, and the Jewish people are here. And the Talmud tells us, based on something, that if you try to harm a Jew, you're poking God in the eye. You know, when the person you poke someone in the eye, they're very not happy. That means that even if you don't, you know, to the eye, you don't really have to do any major injury, just touching it. So you mess with the Jewish people, you're messing with God. So let me explain. The source of anti-Semitism really is those that are discomfortable with God. That's what it is. Now, even if they can mask it in a religion, even a very fervent religious people, whether extreme, you know, whatever, whatever the religion is, doesn't make a difference. Christian, Muslim, doesn't make a difference. The hatred to the Jewish people is a hatred to God. That's the bottom line. And thank God millions and millions and millions of people have shifted and changed and turned around. The Jewish people have a lot of friends today in the world. Millions and millions of Christians have a deep sense of kinship and love for Israel and for the Jewish people. And I think it's very genuine and very sincere. It's because there's a recognition that those who bless, that God says to Abraham, those who bless you will be blessed. So many millions of Arabs in Arab countries this year have had a change of heart towards Israel and towards the Jewish people. It's part of the miracles of the redemptions that are unfolding. You have to understand something. This hatred to the Jewish people, in truth, in essence, is a spiritual thing. It's like a spiritual virus that goes into people and they almost, <laughs> it's almost like, like uncontrollable. Because it really doesn't have any rational explanation. Because whether Jews are good, doing good or Jews are doing bad, if we're poor, we're no good. And if we're rich, we're no good. And if we're this, we're no good. And if we're to the right, we're no good. And if we're to the left, we're no good. And if we're wandering across the entire world, we're not good. If we go back to our homeland, we're not good. The only good Jew is the non-existent Jew. And it doesn't have an explanation. And it's not because we're the worst criminals, and it's not because we've done the world so much bad, and it's not because we're cruel and insensitive and cold and whatever. Every single type of humane campaign 
for humanity, whether it's freeing the slaves, whether it's um, um, human rights, whether it has Jews at the, at, the, at, the, at the forefront of it. On every single one of these. And giving, and charitable giving, and contributions, as we said before, and innovation. In How much? You know, Israel, they once said that if you do the BDS and you, and, and you really want to boycott Israel, you're basically going to... Half the things that mankind today in the modern world has gotten comfortable with, including a cell phone, and so many of the other things that I mean, I don't remember what it was, you'll have to give up. Um, and no one is willing to do that. So it's a fake boycott Israel. It's boycotting, you know, the product that comes from here, but the essential technology, take that all away. You'll be, people will be, will be reversed at least 50 years in terms of, I'm not saying everything was done, everything was, 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 was uh, innovated by Israel and by the Jewish people, but so much was. So um, it is a spiritual thing. So what is it really? What is it really? It really is as follows. The Jewish soul is a unique soul. And that's why the interesting thing is you can't say it's, you know, it's an anti, it's an anti-religious, um, the Jewish religion. It has to go deeper than the Jewish religion because Hitler didn't care if you're religious or not. The Nazis didn't care if you're religious or not. And the uh, terrorists in Israel or around Israel don't either care if you're religious or not. If they hear you speaking Hebrew, they attack two guys in... in, in uh, in Manhattan last week. And the two guys, I mean, they're wonderful people, but they're not, they didn't look to me religious. Not wearing a kippah, not, not, don't seem to be involved. I seem to be right. I did an interview with them. Very nice people, but they were once in the IDF. They heard him speaking Hebrew. That was, was just an identification that they're Jewish. So it's not a, a, a religious element. It has to do with the very existence. It's the kind of a Jew gives off a certain vibration that ticks off a lot of people ticks off a lot of people. And I believe that the people that are ticked off don't even know why they're ticked off. In other words, it's not like consciously that they have, it's something bothers, something deep. And what is it that bothers and what is it that is deep? And we discussed this once. It's because through the Jew, God is, God's energy flows into the universe. The Jewish soul is the conduit for the divine to the world. God says about Israel, Atem Eda, you are my, you are my witnesses. You testify to my existence. That means your bare presence in the world is testimony that I exist. And on a spiritual level, that means that there's certain Wi-Fi that a Jew, you come into a, within a radius of a Jew, whether he's wearing a kippah like me and looks Jewish and wears the fringes and so on and so forth, looks like a chassid, or whether he's utterly not, people sense, there's a certain, there's a certain sense of the divine. So if, thank God, you're a pure soul who, and gravitates to goodness and holiness, then you'll love the Jewish people. And that's why there are people who have unbelievable respect and awe for Israel and for the Jewish people. Sincerely, it's incredible. It's not even the normal respect you'll have for other human beings. It's like this, like, wow. There's like sense of like, wow. Almost feel the honor to be connected to, to... And again, it's not about me. I'm not saying this because I'm... 
You know, it's, it's, it's a fact. And if the, the world has to know, and you know it's a fact, because other than why you can't explain how come we're still in the headlines. How come, you know, think about, oh yeah, the Palestinians, let's say, let's say, let's say we'll say the Palestinians have been mistreated. Let's say. Okay? So I'll ask you the question. If you go through, let, let me, let me, we got like a thousand cameras shining only in Israel, and uh, on the Palestinians in Gaza. Did, you, did we take a look about what's happening in Sudan? Did we take a look what happened? what's happening, I think, in Congo or in these places, in uh, Rwanda? I mean, I mean, people are just being abused and massacring and killing people, innocent people going in. People are going in to a tribal, people are going in and raping women and killing children and beheading people. Did we take a look what's happening in North Korea? Are we all up in arms and screaming about what the Chinese are doing for the, what do they call them, the Uyghurs, the, the, the people? Millions of them tortured, millions of them. Nah, no, no one cares. No one gives a hoot. Okay, yeah, the, the human rights thing gives out a, a thing about, and if you see what goes on in Iran, it's not a problem. It's only a problem in the Jewish state. So you see, it's utterly irrational, it's insane. And it's an excuse. It's a simple excuse for Jew hatred. Hatred, that's what it is. If you hate Jews openly, that's not popular. Because you, know, you don't want to look like you're a bigot or you're a racist, that's like the worst thing in the world. So you don't want to be a bigot or a racist. So you can't hate Jews as a race. You have to hate the Zionists because of the atrocities that they're doing. But because you hate the Zionists, you're running around beating up Jews in New York. What does the Jew, what does the Jew in New York have to do? Ask this person what his opinions on Israel are? Did you speak to him? But you're making an assumption. Which we're not allowed to make assumptions, no? We're living in a world where you can't make any assumptions about anybody. Every human being has to be given the benefit of the doubt in all aspects. Because or else we're already, what do they call it? I forgot what it's called. There's a name for it, right? Profiling. So why are Jews attacked all over the, all over the world without even having an ideological or political conversation with them? Because it's nothing to do with Israel. Israel's just a scapegoat. It's, it's an excuse. To discomfort with a godly people. And the reason it's happening now, I just want to share this also with my Dear anti-Semite friends, the reason it's happening now is because we're at the cusp of an awesome, incredible, godly revelation. And God has given the world a chance right now to choose. Are you with me or are you against me? And that doesn't make a difference how many times you bow down or if you get communion in church or how many times you bow down if you pray five times a day and in mosque, doesn't make a difference. Or if you're an atheist, a non-believer, and so on and so forth. One of the major, major telling, I'm not saying the only one, but major, one of the major, major telling points, um, when, when the day finally comes, when God is not hiding anymore, and He's open and He's revealed, is, what's your attitude towards the Jewish people? If you love Israel, you're loving God. So what happens if you find yourself really disliking the Jewish people? Maybe if you think about this. Maybe if you 
do a psychoanalysis. What's bothering me? Can I explain it? Some people are just silly because you just pick up and you read everything you read and you believe everything and so on, whatever. It's a lot of propaganda. But so what you do is you pray to God and you say, God, shine light upon me. Let me see the truth. Let me not be associated with that which is hates you. Let me not be drenched, saturated with the venom of the snake from the Garden of Eden. I know we're coming to a moment when the world is purified. Help me be pure. I guarantee you a sincere prayer like that will cleanse, will detox. You'll find a very deep love for Israel and for the Jewish people. You'll see everything in a different light. Now, people can shout and scream and yell and say all kinds of swear words and all kinds of things. It's all real. <laughs> what I'm saying is it's all irrelevant. It's all irrelevant. You're looking at, you read comments, such hate, hateful comments. It's all irrelevant. Remember, the, remember, if you're fighting God, you're going to lose. You're going to lose. And the proof is my history. The proof is that I'm alive today, and that I'm on YouTube today, and I'm talking from this podium. That's the proof. It's based on all natural explanations. I shouldn't be here because my grandparents shouldn't be alive. If I told you the story of my, both my father's side and my mother's side, my, mother's, my, mother, my grandmother was already sent to the left. She was already sent to the gas chambers. Miraculously, she's alive. All the other people that were sent stood over there, full of Nazi guards with massive barking door, dogs, with guns, with rifles. Instant, and anybody tried to give any resistance were shot dead in an instant. They were all helpless. They just got off a train where they didn't have anything to eat and to drink for two, three days. They were weak, they were broken, they had no, they were confused, they had no idea what's happening, no where they're going. And in that bewilderment, she was sent to the left. My great aunt, who just passed away two weeks ago, was her older sister, stood there, one of the only people ran up to, stood up to Mengele and, 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 and argued and said, she's young, she can work. He pulled her back, re-looked in her eyes, and he sent it to the right. And that was just one story. My, mother's fa my father's family was hiding in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an attic for two years. Yes, by a righteous Gentile, a beautiful, beautiful human being who sacrificed his life for his decency and his goodness because he was a pure and wonderful soul. May he be blessed and his family be blessed. And my family has ties with his family, a Catholic family in Poland, a doctor, risked his life. The town square has a major street named after this doctor. Saved the family. Uh, why am I alive? It's a miracle. That's why I'm alive. And that's the miracle that happened 70 years ago. Uh, <laughs> before that, there were pogroms and inquisitions. And I don't know where my family lineage goes back, but I'm sure it wasn't smooth sailing. So I'm a miracle. I don't, based on statistics, I shouldn't be here. Based on the survival of the fittest, I shouldn't be here. And I'm here, and thank God my children are here. And we're here to stay. Because God is here to stay forever and ever.
Um, let's understand, however, on a much deeper level, the, the, this godliness of the Jewish soul. What is it? What is it all about? So I'm not going to be talking about any anti-Semitism anymore. So those who, want, who, who are intrigued by the anti-Semitism and hate, Jew hatred title of this subject, um, this is it. You can uh, go on to watch other YouTubes. And uh, you're free to go. But those who would like to have a very deep core insight into the uniqueness of the Jewish soul and uh, what it represents in this world, why, why the Jew is here in this world, and, 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 and why, as we spoke earlier, is there such a reaction? But I'm not talking again to the reaction about the Just the... Is what we're going to be talking about today is the deep oneness between the soul and God. And I mean primarily a Jewish soul. Um, now, this doesn't mean God forbid in any way that non-Jewish souls are not holy and special. Judaism is the only, I think, the only religion, at least from the three major religions, that um, doesn't believe in um, in the um, that. In other words, Judaism is the uh, is the one religion that does not does not say that in order to be saved, in order to have eternity, you have to be Jewish, which is what Catholics believe, and it is what um, what Muslims believe. That ultimately, the ultimate embrace of God is only for those members of the religion. In Judaism, it's not that way. Judaism believes that the Jewish people have a special goal and a special mission to uplift mankind and to leave the world to its ultimate state. But once the world reaches its ultimate state, the goodness and the light and the blessing of it will be shared with all of humanity. The enlightenment will be shared with all of humanity. And people won't even become Jewish then. Actually, you, you can't even become Jewish. If anybody wants to become Jewish, they got to do it very quickly. Because once what we call the Messiah is here, once we're living in really the end time, or like I like to call it the beginning time, um, no, more, no more acceptance of any converts. But that does not mean that man cannot live, in, man or woman, or what I'm saying, you know, the, the people can't live in the ultimate fulfillment. Of course they can. In deep knowledge of God, and deep closeness of God, and beneficiaries of great, 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 incredible blessings. For all of forever. If what? And there were, obviously it's, 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 it has to do with an acceptance of, a, of the moral code that the Torah says, the seven basic Noahide laws that God gave to all of mankind. And that's for everyone. And at that time, everybody's going to live by these, by these laws. So it's not God forbid, um, so my intention is not God forbid to, you know, say it's, it's about the Jewish people. I'm just talking about being that we're, uh, most of the people that listen to the class are Jewish people. And we're here to study and to understand. And I think this is good for, 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 non, for the non-Jewish audience as well, is to understand and to appreciate 
the godliness of the Jewish soul. And perhaps there are people that uh, can also identify, at least to a certain degree, to what I am saying, even if you're not Jewish. So um, this week's Torah portion is very unique and very special. Because the Torah portion begins with the mitzvah, the, the commandment to light the lamps. In the temple, Balos Chasaneros, there is a mitzvah to light the menorah. So Aaron, the high priest, <coughs> every day in the temple, in the afternoon, before evening, would light seven lamps. So we know that the physical act of lighting the menorah was just a physical manifestation of some incredible spiritual experience. The lamps represent the souls, and the souls need to be ignited. Lighting a lamp means lighting up a soul. What is the meaning to light up a soul? How do you light a soul? So obviously, the one who was doing the lighting of the souls must be a super mega soul. An incredible, incredible being whose soul is a conduit for, for an unbelievable energy flow. That when he directs his energy towards a soul, and especially a it, this is, we're not dealing just with one soul, even though he, he does light one soul at a time, but he also has the ability to, to channel incredible godly energy into millions of souls every day and ignite them. What's the ignitement of a soul? The ignitement of a soul is that the soul gravitates towards the divine. Naturally, our consciousness is one of self. We feel ourselves, we see the big world around us, and the world around us is filled with distractions, filled with opportunities to have a good time, which means to satiate our, our desires and wants, and basically to be busy with ourselves. That's the, our ordinary consciousness. Our soul, however, being that our soul is a peace, is a heavenly being, and it's not really, it's before it comes down to earth, when the child is born, the soul resides in heaven, and it lives, and it experiences, and it gravitates thousands of years. It basks in God's light. It experiences spiritual ecstasy and bliss. So even when it comes down in the body, it has the potential to want and to crave the spiritual and the godly, and not the earthy. However, because it's in a body, and because it's blocked by the body and what we might call a dark soul, the godly soul encloses in, itself, gets wrapped, gets, gets inserted, gets enveloped, in a darker soul, when we say the darker soul, we mean a more a soul, it's also a spirit, but it's a spirit that, has, that doesn't really have much 
of an affinity and, a, and, a, and, a, and an identification with the divine. It's a spirit that um, is also self-centered, absorbed in its own existence, in its own beingness, in its own happiness. And when it goes into a body, very, very, very much identifies with the physical. And it takes pleasure in all the physical delights and enjoyments. And then life becomes one of indulgence to, to the degree that life allows it. You have to go work, you have to make a living, you have to take care. But when you have free time, what do you do? The natural disposition of the animal soul, of this lower spirit, spirit that identifies so much to the body is to go after the things that make the body feel good. Whether it's food, whether it's uh, other, other, other forms of entertainment and enjoyment. And it's not, it's not idealistic. It's not looking for something bigger than itself to serve. It's just thinking about itself. That's the nature of this animal soul. Now the godly soul that's inside of it gets trapped in this and blocked. So even though the aspirations of the soul is towards God, because it's now blocked, and for many years, especially when you're a young child, and uh, you, know, you don't really have the mind to study, to learn, to be educated, and instead you're being fed, not, not in any bad way, that's what a child has to be. A child has to be pampered and taken care of and physically. But being that you, all, all, all you're given to experience is potato chips and licorice and chocolate and other, other, and even a mother and parents that are responsible and give their kids healthy food, but it's still, it's primarily physical nutrition, not so much spiritual nutrition. And even though you could get a good education, you should get a good education, and parents should make sure that from when the children are very young to give them a healthy dosage of spirituality and faith in God and so on and so on, and love for God. So you could develop that. But you still need a certain level of maturity of mind and maturity of being to be able to really internalize that and process and understand. In other words, to really open up your soul, it takes. So for so many years, it's ignored. So what happens is the, the, in the, the, this encasement, this, this cover gets thicker and thicker and dense and the underlying higher consciousness is blocked to the point that the soul itself forgets its origins. So what is it doing inside the body, the godlier soul, the, the peace of God from above, the soul that is, that is, that is, that is, that is so holy and so, so sublime, but while it's in the body and it hasn't been tended to, it hasn't been, it, it, it kind of forgets its own, its, own, its own source. And at best, it kind of falls asleep and non-active. And it might even, there's even a possibility, here's a, here's a shocking statement, but there's even a possibility that that soul gets corrupted to a certain degree. Corrupted in this, that it begins to enjoy and see the material physical as, as the, the objective in life. Forgetting that, she's, that this soul is a princess coming from the divine palace. And that's the reason why you have a high priest. That's the reason this whole setup that God has the high priest. What's the high priest? The high priest is a person whose consciousness is so very sublime. You know, we had Aaron, Moses' brother, you know, a prophet, someone who's, who can speak to God. And his, his love for God is like a blazing fire. It's like infinite. And when he channels his energy every, more, every, every evening, and, that, and that's why it's most important to do it in the evening, because during daytime represents a time 
when there's more light in our lives, when we have clarity, when we have more of a spiritual light. But particularly in the times when things get dark, when we don't have the clarity, when we don't have the, 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 um, the wisdom, when we don't have, we're not seeing miracles, things look dark, we feel a little forsaken. And it's in those dark times, what we call the nights of our lives, that we need the assistance of this great saintly high priest who has the ability. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to talk to him. The very fact that the high priest would stand in the temple, again, when this is when the temple stood thousands of years, that's another reason why we need the temple back. Because <laughs> we can use this spiritual empowerment. Today's days, we have it to a certain degree, but not in the same way, because we need a temple for this. So when the high priest would stand in, in front and he would light those physical flames, that had spiritual influence that he literally charged the souls of millions of people with each candle that he lit. Because Why seven? Because the souls are divided into seven categories. Well, it's not for now. Why that is? There are seven different types of souls and each one needs its own energy, its own inspiration. So when he would light the candles, he would ignite these souls. And suddenly, they would awaken within themselves a sense of what am I doing in this world? What am I accomplishing in this life? What higher purpose am I serving? And seeking to get connected. A yearning, a desire, a want for a spiritual connection, for something higher in life. Which would obviously drive them to what? To spend more time in prayer and in meditation and to take their physical energies and, and, and physical resources and use it not for the, for the satisfaction of the immediate gratification of their body, but towards something higher, towards education of others, towards making the world a better place, a God doing, doing goodness and helping people. These are all godly things that the soul wants to do, an idealistic soul wants to do, but the ide idealism of the soul needs to be provoked, needs to be awakened, because the soul sometimes falls asleep. And that's the mitzvah of lighting the lamps. So let me read to you a very interesting Midrash. The Midrash says, this is not a Midrash in our parsha, Parshas Baalosa, it's a Midrash um, in, par, in, in uh, Parshas Re'eh, Midrash Rabbah, Parshas Re'eh, Parsha Dalid, um, Siv Dalid. It says here like this, Amar HaKadosh Baruch, it's a beautiful thing. Oh, here we are. Amar Bar Kapara, Bar Kapara, one of the sages say, both the soul and the Torah are compared to a flame, to a candle. The soul of man is compared to a candle. The lamp of God is the soul of man. It's a verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 20, and Mishle. The lamp of God is the soul of man. And the Torah is also called a lamp. So again, the human soul is called a lamp. And the Torah is also called a lamp. The Chsivit says in the verse, also in, in Proverbs, but this is in the fourth chapter of Proverbs, of Mishlei, Ki ner mitzvah, a mitzvah, a commandment, is a lamp. The Torah or, and Torah is a light. So we have two lamps. Our soul is a lamp, and a mitzvah, a commandment, and the Torah is another lamp. So God says to man, 
God says to this human being, which means to each and every one of us, here's a conversation that God has with each and every one of us. And what does he say? Neiri <coughs> My lamp is in your hands. Which means my lamp, I'm giving you, I'm giving it over to you for you to control. What is that? Which is the lamp of God? Ne'er mitzvah v'torah or God's commandments and the Torah, that's God's. And God says, I am handing and I'm entrusting you with my lamp. You can either keep the commandments, study the Torah, and thereby keep this lamp burning and this light shining. Or God forbid, you can ignore my commandments. Or God forbid, even worse, violate, violate the commandments. And dismiss the Torah or not study it, not engage in it, shut it down. And what you're doing is you're shutting down my lamp. And God says, but be careful. Because your lamp, which is your soul, is in my hand. So the way you treat my lamp, I will treat your lamp. Pretty, pretty intense. So nadi my hand, my lamp is in your hand. V'neidach, and your lamp, which is the soul, biyadin. We don't control when we're, if we're waking up tomorrow. The only one who knows we wake up in the morning is God. We should all pray that everybody listening to this class should wake up tomorrow, not just tomorrow, but the day after tomorrow. And a very long life for everyone. But after all said and done, we don't have a guarantee on that. God is the one who, 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 who has complete due restriction over our souls. So Hashem says, My lamp is in your hands. Zuha Torah, that's the Torah. Your lamp is by me. Zuha Nefesh, that's the soul. Hear these words. If you watch my lamp, if you guard my Torah, I'm going to guard your lamp. I'm going to guard your soul. If God forbid you extinguish my lamp, I'm going to extinguish your soul. Okay, this is a statement. So what do we see from here? That um, the keeping of the lamp should not be extinguished. Now, I mean, you can read this in a very dark way and understand it as extinguishing the soul means obliterating the soul and so on and so forth. But based on what we discussed earlier, that the soul's lamp means the soul's fire, means the soul's attachment to God, its craving for God, its yearning for the divine, its constant spiritual ascendance, and that's why it's called a lamp. That's a fire of the soul, the passion of the soul, the spiritual um, 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 cravings of the soul. That's called a burning soul, an extinguished soul, means, God forbid, a soul that's, that's uninspired, a soul that's kind of dead, has no, no interest in, 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 in connecting to the infinite. That's very sad, think about it. There is an infinite truth, and we're finite. We live in this finite little crack of existence, a tiny little sliver of time and space. And yet, each and every one of us has the opportunity and the ability to connect to the infinite even one second connected to the infinite, you realize the infinite is beyond seconds in time. So it's, it's eternal, it's everlasting, it's, it's infinite. <coughs> but there has to be a striving and a desire 
it's so sad when a person has no craving for it, no thought of it. You think that all of existence is the here and the now. That's it. Making money and becoming famous and having power and influence. And, and that's all that exists. And, 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 and let's eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. And then that's it. It's so sad for a soul that has the opportunity to cleave, to connect, to bond with the infinite has forgotten that. So we need to keep the soul burning. So what does the verse say? What does the Midrash tell us? God says, if you study my Torah and you do my mitzvahs, I'll keep your lamp burning. <coughs> so that means, what does that mean? It means, as a Jew at least, you can't have spirituality, a craving and a yearning for the divine without mitzvah observance, without Torah study. It, 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 the, 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 the energy, the, the soul will dry up. The world around us, the world that we live in will be just too, too, um, too constricting, too overwhelming. It will drag, it will swallow. The soul will be drowned, let's put it this way. The soul will drown in the materialism of life or in the problems of life, or in the depression, or in the despair, or in the darkness, or in whatever. The rage, the anger, whatever it is that, that, that a person experiences, the intense stuff. It will completely swamp the soul and drain the soul, you have no, and you have no spirituality left. So to maintain your spiritual ignition and your desire for the infinite, in other words, for a soul to remain spiritual, it needs Torah and mitzvahs. It needs to study Torah and do the mitzvahs. Now, in the Hasidic discourse that I'm sharing with you right now, which is a discourse stated by the Lubavitcher Rebbe, by the Rebbe, in the year 1969, on the Shabbos Parshas Bahalosho, this week's Torah portion, the Rebbe explores this midrash and gives incredible insight in it. And he tells, number one, first idea. Even though that's true by most souls, that without doing mitzvahs or without studying Torah, you, the person will sink and will become their soul, their fire of their soul will kind of wither out until it's gone. And there won't be any more spirituality within the soul. Because again, soul inherently has spirituality, but when it gets comes into this world, it could get overwhelmed by the thickness and the density and the darkness of this world. Like a child that's abducted when they're very young can forget who their parents are. Totally forget their original identity. And that's what can happen to the soul. And that's a, prime, that's a general rule that would apply to the majority of people. But the Rebbe says, there is an exception. There are few, not that many, but few souls that are of an extraordinary, extraordinary sublime origin. These souls are called souls of atzilut, of the world of emanation, which are very, very sublime and very, very high souls. And these souls, their fire and their attachment, their spiritual quality is so intense 
that the earthiness of the body can never, can never destroy it, can never overwhelm it. Those souls can maintain a spiritual quest and a spiritual yearning and they don't need the input of mitzvahs and Torah to keep their spiritual yearning alive. And I want to be very clear. I don't want you to shut down the YouTube now and not hear what I'm going to continue. Even though I dismissed everybody that wants to leave early before, now don't leave. <laughs> I'm not saying that these souls don't need to learn Torah and they don't need to do mitzvahs. They can suffice on their own spiritual quests and learning and sing love songs. You know, go to a mountaintop and take out a guitar and sing their heart out to God. Which that itself is a mitzvah because that's it's the mitzvah of cleaving to God. But let's say, in other words, they don't need to do actual mitzvahs. They, they could experience spiritual yearning without, in other words, for most souls, if you don't feed it continuously a dosage of Torah study and mitzvahs that keep the soul fresh, that keep the, 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 the blood flowing, that keep the circulation of the soul from freezing. You know, when you go somewhere very cold, and it's really, really, if you don't move around the whole time and do exercise and stuff like that, you know, it can freeze very, very quickly. You have to be covered and also, and it takes, it requires that, that, that rubbing of your hands and so on and so forth. So the mitzvahs and the Torah massage the soul and the frost of this world that it shouldn't get frozen in the frostiness of a cold world that doesn't wreck, of the density of the, of the material world that might cause the soul a deep freeze. So there are souls that will get frozen and they need Torah and mitzvahs to keep them warm. And that's symbolized by Aaron, the high priest, lighting the souls. He lights the souls. <coughs> Is he, it has to do with the lights of Torah and mitzvot that the high priest uses kind of to inspire the souls. For instance, I'll give you an example for this idea. The Lubavitcher Rebbe sent out thousands and thousands of his boys and girls to go across the entire Jewish world to meet Jews, American Jews, French Jews, British Jews, Australian Jews, Jews across the world. For many of them, they have lost their, their connection to Judaism. Not only that, they don't even, they haven't even seen themselves as spiritual people. Those people that are quite satisfied and successful in their lives with successful careers and many of them with successful marriages and family and so on and so forth. Not people that are in distress, but many, you know, people that we might say are doing pretty well. And these people don't seem to have been bothered by any kind of a need, that they need spirituality, they need to find a deeper meaning in life, they're kind of comfortable. And yet the Rebbe sent out hundreds, and he sent out thousands of, of his young men and women, we know the shluchim, the emissaries, and also boys and girls that go out all the time asking people if they're Jewish. And what would the Rebbe say, <coughs> instruct his chassidim, his emissaries to do? Ask the Jew to do a mitzvah. And you say, well, the person is going to do a mitzvah one time, and what is that going to help? You want to save the Jewish people from assimilating. You want to save them from intermarriage. You want to keep the Jewish people safe as, as an entity. And would 
Jews, God, so many Jews are getting lost to assimilation. So many Jews are kind of like falling by the wayside. So you, what you should do is you should, you know, try to have a long-term effect on these people by, you know, drawing them in and getting into debates and arguments and, or at least try to teach them. But the Rebbe was... I mean, obviously he did tell us to teach as much as we can teach, but that's not, that wasn't the objective. It was to get across the entire world, find one Jew, every Jew, and try to do at least one mitzvah with every Jew. And for women, if the, the men put on the tefillin, for the women, light the Shabbos candles. Millions of Jewish men and, and, and women that were unaffiliated, if you can say, or maybe affiliated, but not too spiritual, if you might say. God and spirituality did not, did not occupy a major part in their life, have encountered Chabad emissaries and did a mitzvah. And lo and behold, many of these people that did a mitzvah once had found that after they did that mitzvah, something in their heart opened up. And they started feeling more of a tug towards Judaism. The one mitzvah they did inspired them later to go to a Hanukkah party, which they didn't do in years. You know, Hanukkah was not too important. They didn't identify with their Jewishness. Or go to a Purim event. Or go to shul for the high holidays. Or start coming weekly to a Torah class. Or to shul for the prayers. Or to join, a, you know, as we said before, a Torah study class. Or, whatever. or to do mitzvah at least once a week to join the Tefillin Sunday bagels. And, uh, and, and Locke's group. I don't know, like all the uh, places that they have all these various different programs. And it started from what? From one mitzvah. And that's what we're learning now. There are souls who without this mitzvah, they are frozen, literally frozen. And the mitzvah dissolves the frost and allows the fire, you know, brings back the circulation, the spirituality of the soul. So that's most souls. But then you have unique individuals that are super spiritual. Sometimes you meet people non-observant. Not only that, have, haven't had any exposure to Judaism, that Jewish people. I'm talking about, now I'm talking, particularly now I'm talking about Jewish souls. And they're, they're, but they're highly spiritual. Amazingly spiritual people. That means they have a very deep sense of the divine and of the infinite and, and are driven in their lives with, with a kind of a sense of purpose and meaning that goes beyond their physical existence. And that could be, again, based on what we're learning over here, due to the fact that their souls are etched or come from a very, very sublime place where their attachment to God <coughs> is so deep and so intense and so powerful that all the distractions and all the blockages of the material, physical world cannot diminish the fire in that soul, cannot freeze that soul. The oven is too hot, it can't get frozen. So these souls, we might say, don't need the mitzvah for their fire. Now I'm talking primarily, I just spoke about people that are not observant and not religious, and therefore not doing mitzvahs, and yet they're very spiritual. But then, let's add to that, there are many of, or there could be some of these unique, incredible, high, lofty souls that um, are involved in mitzvahs and in Torah study. 
and there might be quite a few of them, who learn a lot of Torah and do mitzvahs, but they don't need the Torah and the mitzvahs to ignite their love. Their love would be burning even without the Torah and the mitzvahs. So that's what I'm talking about. In other words, the question is, do you need the Torah to ignite your soul, or is the soul on fire on its own? So we just explained that the Midrash is saying, if you watch my Torah, if you watch my lamp, God says, I will watch your lamp. And what does it mean to guard a lamp? A guard a lamp means it shouldn't be extinguished. And how do you guard a lamp that it shouldn't be extinguished? The Midrash is saying, if you guard the Torah and the mitzvahs, if you keep my lamp alive, that means you observe the mitzvahs, the, you know, you, you, whether it, you, you shake a lulav on sukkahs, you eat the matzah on Passover, you light a menorah on Hanukkah, you put on tefillin every day, you light your Shabbos candles, you give tzedakah, charity, you study Torah, all these things. We do all these mitzvahs. We keep, and we're careful not to violate, we, keep, we make sure to keep kosher, family purity, keep the Shabbat, Shabbos, and so on and so forth. So these are things that we do to keep our soul alive and well. So it seems in the Midrash that they're connected. And esaneros, the high priest through, and in our case I said the story about the Lubavitcher Rebbe. A Rebbe is a high priest, a great super soul. The high priest of our generation without a question is Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he, he, he had the power to, to ignite millions of souls across the whole world by igniting their souls. How did he ignite? Through his students that would go out and do a mitzvah. And the mitzvah was the way he would light the menorah across the entire world. Keep Jews Jewish. How about the Jews, as we spoke earlier, that are spiritually connected on their own? So for here, there is another meaning in the words Ba'alos Chasaneros, when you alight the, the lamps. Based on what we just said before, the lighting of the lamps on the previous level that we just discussed, guarding the neshama from going extinct, make, and if it's extinct, to reignite, that's basically what we would call maintenance is to maintain the holiness and the godliness of the soul. The soul intrinsically has its connection. And the mitzvahs and the Torah that we study keep the, keep the soul warm so that the, as we said, it's an antifreeze. And that even though we're in a material world with all the problems and bills to pay and distractions and emails and texts and Facebook and this and that, we're bewildered, we're bombarded with a million different things all the time. Things that make us happy and things that depress us and things that make us nervous and things that give us anxiety and people that make us nervous and people that upset us and people that, I mean, all the stuff that this constantly, imagine it's like a world, instead of a soul sitting there on a mountaintop in heaven and, and, and basking in the glory of the creator, singing and hearing the songs of the celestial beings and soaring in ecstasy in the beautiful song, looking at the in, infinite beauty of the creator. What are we busy with all day now over here? And in the middle, we eat a piece of chicken <laughs> and a little bit of this and a little piece of cake and a little, a little cracker and herring. And with, hey, how is this all supposed to contribute and keep your soul's passion and fire to God? So we need maintenance. How do we get the maintenance? 
the maintenance we get by the mitzvahs. Either we do the mitzvahs themselves, ourselves, or we have this great rabbi who sends his emissaries out to chase Jews to do mitzvahs and awaken their soul. Maintenance. But now there's another level. Bahaloscha means when you will lift up. Esaneros, the lamps. It means that the purpose now of the igniting is not just to keep the soul from falling, or if the soul fell, to get it back up again to where it was, but Baaloscha, to elevate the soul. Which means that there is another purpose of the mitzvot and the Torah, is that the soul is now elevated to heights that the soul never had, even when it was in heaven, where the soul goes beyond its previous state. And this is necessary even for the super mega souls that we spoke about before, that don't need that much maintenance. They're good on their own. And can, go, and, and can keep and maintain a spiritual identity even in the darkness of this world. But these souls still can use this elevation. And they still need the connection to the high priest. Because the high priest, who's higher than all these souls, has the ability to infuse them and to empower them. Again, through the observance of Torah and through the, observance, the study of Torah and the doing of the mitzvahs, to lift them up to levels of, of connection to God far beyond what the soul has had um, capable on its own. Even, the, even a soul that doesn't fall still needs the elevation. Balos chasaner is when you light. And according to that, what would mean the meaning of the Midrash, where the Midrash says, if you watch my lamp, if you guard my lamp, I will guard yours. Then the guarding of the lamp over here is not just guarding, but it's enhancing. I will enhance your light. But then we need to understand why is it called guarding. If it's, if it's an enhancement, and it's an intensification, and it's an elevation, and it's a brightening of it, why is it just called guardian? Guarding generally means I'm just protecting what you have already. But yet we're saying it's not just what we have. It's way beyond that. So to understand this and the content of this elevation, here is where we're going to get very deep and appreciating what really is the secret of the Jewish soul, the power of the Jewish soul. We said earlier that um, the Jewish soul is a display or a conduit for the divine in this world. And we spoke when we discussed anti-Semitism before how there's certain vibrations of God that people even can feel emanating from the Jewish people. The Jewish people as a whole and the Jewish people individually. And that is sensed and felt. Yet we know that in order for a Jew to really be godly in this world, to enhance his or her godliness, it like becomes way more when the Jew actively studies Torah and does a mitzvah. That means there is the Jew, the naked Jew, the Jew without observance, 
that too is already very holy. And then there is the Jew performing a holy act, a godly act in this world. One of the 613 commandments. So what is the addition? What is the extra godliness that comes down over the fact that the Jew is already a, a holy entity? So here is a very interesting idea. There is a verse that says that um, King Solomon says, Hachacham, the wise man, I think this is also in Proverbs, King Solomon says, Hachacham, the wise man, Einov Birosho, his eyes are in his head. Which is a pretty strange statement because you know, where then is a person's eyes? And if you're not wise, your eyes are not in your head? That's a good question. And the Zohar asks this question. The Zohar is the primary book of Kabbalah, right? Of Jewish mysticism. So the Zohar asks the question, a Jew, his eye, and I'm sorry, a wise man, his eyes are in his head. And if you're not wise, and foolish people, their eyes are not in their head, they also have their eyes in their head. So the Zohar says, Eyes in their head means they're constantly thinking about their head. Their eyes are upon their head, in their head. They're, they're looking, they're, they're, they're vision, they're observing their head. And what does it mean they're observing their own head? You actually, you can't see your head. <laughs> as much as you want to see your head, it's the one thing you can never see because you pick your eyes up, your head goes back, you can't see your head. Right? Unless you have a disfigured head. But generally, a person can't see their own head. So what does it mean your eyes in your head? But just like, I'll give an example, it means eyes in a head. Eyes in a head means we wear a kippah on our head. And I wouldn't think, and, and you know, most people who wear a kippah, you can't, like, the moment the kippah falls off, you're like, you know, thrown and you, you, can't, you can't think, you can't do anything else because you keep it. That's why a lot of, you know, not, uh, with those who want to tease Jews and sometimes wanted to hurt Jews would try to on purposely run and throw their kippah off. And, and, and um, that actually hurts a Jew very deeply. Even though, sadly, there are Jews who, are not wearing a kippah, but those who do wear a kippah, you become you and your kippah become one. So much so that if you take a, if, if if you throw a kippah off, it's it's almost as if you you're cutting off a piece of someone's head. That's what it feels like. You have to wear your kippah. It's actually a, a forbidden. You're not allowed to walk four cubits without your kippah. Four cubits is about six feet. So always have your head covered. So much so that you know people that were people that are very sensitive. So we you know we sleep with our kippah, but. When you're sleeping, it can fall off. People that are very sensitive wake up and the moment their kippah falls off. They, 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 they were in the Chabad Yeshiva, not now, two generations ago, in the fifth Chabad Rebbe, you know, the Rebbe wanted to know the sensitivity of the boys, where they're holding. And uh, there, was, there was the one who was like the, the in charge, the mashgiach. The, so he kind of would, would be, I think he was instructed you know, to look, you know, the boys have to be boys. In other words, if you're if you're in the yeshiva, you should you should have developed such a high level of sensitivity that you should naturally feel wake up that you can't if they keep a falls off you can't sleep. And you say, how's that possible? When a mother is nursing a baby, and she takes the baby into her bed at night, baby cries, takes the baby into the into her bed. If the baby is about to fall off the bed, the mother wakes up. Mostly, it could happen, you know, the 
baby can fall off, but man, it hardly ever happens. Mothers always fall asleep with their babies. And you wonder, how come they don't roll over their baby, God forbid, and suffocate the baby? It happened in the story of King Solomon with two, two women with the baby, and once, uh, when, when the baby died, okay, it, it, it could happen, but you know, it's rare. Why doesn't a, a mother suffocate her child? Why doesn't a mother drop the baby off the bed? Sometimes you're rolling over, you're this, you're, you're sleeping. And their answer is, even when you're sleeping, when it's your own little baby, you feel your baby. So there's certain things that are intrinsic. They're deep inside. Our kippah is very, very deep inside. We're one with our kippah. So this idea that a person is always thinking, do I have my kippah? The wind is blowing. Oh, I put my hand on my head. I don't want to lose my kippah. Going on a roller coaster. <laughs> Sometimes they make you take off your hat. I always had a problem when I took my kids to amusement parks. Now they shut down all the amusement parks. That just reopened, right? But thank God my kids are getting older and I don't have to go to amusement parks. I'm not that such a big... I used to like roller coasters, actually. It was, it was a thrill. I think I'm, I'm, I'm getting past that age. I definitely don't enjoy standing in line for an hour to go on a thrill ride. But um, in any case, so you get onto the roller coaster, you know, they, always, they tell you to move your hat, take off your... Move your hat off. So I always had a problem because you wear a keeper. You can't, you can't take your keeper off. So we have to argue with the people. I'm keeping my keeper. But if the keeper's going to fall off, you have to keep a cap on. The cap will hold the keeper. Right? Um, so that means your eyes are on your head. What's on your head? But the Zohar says that idea, that it's referring to oil. Mm -hmm. The Zohar says, when it says your eyes are on your head, you, is the, you make sure your head is always oily. It's not so good to have oily hair. What's the oil... What's the, you make sure that you have always oil, oil in your head. So he brings another verse, the Zohar. The Zohar says, V'shemen al roshcha al yechza. I think it's also a verse from King Solomon, Shlomo Melech. Oil from upon your head should never be lacking. And that's what it means. A wise man is always thinking about his head is that he always makes sure that this head has oil. And if the oil is going out, he replenishes the oil. What are we talking about? So the Zohar says, look at this. The person is called a nair. The person is called a lamp. The fire of a lamp is the divine presence. The fire is God. The wick is the body. Good. So you got a wick and you have a fire. And you have a lamp. You have a candle. But it's not really going to burn. Because just a wick and a fire is not going to last too long. In order to keep a wick burning and a fire burning on a wick, you need oil. I mean, you can use wax or whatever, but an oil lamp needs oil. So in addition to having a body, there is a wick. I'm sorry, the fire, the flame is the divine presence that rests upon every person. The body is the candle. Where is your oil? So the Zohar says the oil are the good deeds, the mitzvot. And this is what the verse is saying. A wise man has his, his, his eyes on his head. A wise man is always thinking about, I better make sure I got my oil, my lamp full, because God forbid, if the lamp goes out, runs out of oil, the flame will burn out, which means the divine presence will leave. And I don't want to be even one second in my life without God residing on my head. Pretty amazing interpretation. 
A wise man is always thinking about his head. So to keep the Shekhinah on top of a person's head, that means you constant, constantly do mitzvah. You should have a mitzvah supply. Every day, make sure you shouldn't have a day go by where you don't do a special mitzvah. Or maybe you do a lot of mitzvahs during the day. Just to keep, to make sure that the oil is always there. Good deeds. That's why the, the Rebbe encouraged... Everybody should have tzedakah boxes. These are char charity boxes all over. Have one in your kitchen. The Rebbe said you should fix it to the wall of the kitchen. And when it, you always have change, you walk by, don't put it in. Have one on your office desk. Have one in your car, in your children's bedroom. Everywhere. Mitzvah reminders. Wherever you are, always have a bunch of coins. Always put them in. Constantly do a mitzvah. Why? Because that's how you keep the oil, which keeps... This is what it says in Zohar. Rav Shneir Zalman of Liadi, the first Chabad Rebbe, asks a simple question. I get it, a lamp needs oil. And a wick can't burn just with a flame. And if it will burn, it will extinguish really quickly. But, why you have a holy soul. Why can't the soul be considered the oil? Why do you need an addition to the soul? You need... In addition to the neshama, one needs to do good deeds. A good deed, we understand, is attractive to God. You're doing His will, you're doing a mitzvah, you're attracting God. But isn't the soul holy? Didn't we say before, a soul is a piece of God from above? And a soul yearns for God, and it longs for God, and it craves for God, and it praises God. <laughs> so that should serve as oil. Just the mere fact that there is a soul. The body is the wick, but the soul it should be the oil. So why do we need an addition of oil? A mitzvah. So Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi, in his unique style of really, really delving deeply to the essence of everything, Explains. He says, what is the meaning of oil? What happens to oil? In order for oil to support a fire, the oil needs to be completely combustiated in the fire. In other words, the fire has to drink up the oil. And the oil has to become null and void, or we might say integrated, and dissolve in the fire. That's how oil keeps fire burning. The oil remains in the cup. It happened miraculously. It did happen. Hanukkah was that way. Like the oil is not getting combustuated and yet it's burning. There's different interpretations of what the miracle of Hanukkah was. Maybe it was getting combustuated at the same time it wasn't. That's an explanation. We once spoke about that, but I'm not getting into it. Generally, naturally, for oil to burn, the oil has to disappear in the fire. And that's why oil is the best thing to keep a fire going. Because oil goes very, very willfully into the fire. Other, other uh, substances put up a fight. And that's why they're not such good fuel. Oil is the best fuel for a fire because it kind of like, it accepts its fate <laughs> joyfully. It doesn't make, that's why it doesn't make any noise. Other things, when you burn them, they make sounds, sizzling sounds. So, and sometimes they, 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 they hear crackle. And if you burn wood or whatever, it's because there's resistance. Fire is very interesting. Fire, in order for it to hang around, 
it's, it's, it's very demanding. Fire is all-consuming. Fire says, I am. And if you want me to be around, you gotta, you got to surrender to me. How much do you got to surrender to me? How much do I demand? I demand everything. If you want me down here, I need to eat you up completely. So who wants to be eaten? Oil doesn't mind being eaten. So the Alter Rebbe says, that idea, God, everything that he created in the world, has a message. God is compared to a fire. Why? Because if you want God to hang around somewhere, if you want him to be present, what does it mean to God to be present? God is everywhere. Let's, let's, let's first analyze this a minute. There's no place where he's not. But he's not everywhere visibly. If we want the visible presence of the divine. Now when I say visible, I don't necessarily mean that you can physically see it, but that you can sense it. You want the divine to be present in a way that it gives off vibrations that you can sense. That means it's and you can sense that God is in this place. It's a holy place. What God is compared to a fire. In what sense? Is that in order for him to be present visibly somewhere, openly displayed somewhere, that somewhere, wherever he's being displayed, has to acknowledge God. God is not going to live somewhere be somewhere without the host acknowledging that he's there. Now, to acknowledge God is very different than acknowledging anything else. To acknowledge someone else, you can be you and acknowledge someone else. Because me and you can exist simultaneously together. I can be and you can be. Obviously, we can't share the exact same space, but right next to you. You can be here, I can be here, and we both can... We both can, you know, share the room together and we can communicate and be... With God, it's a little different. Because the truth of God is, in those, if he identifies himself and you're willing to accept it, his truth is that he is, is. Again, let me say that again. His truth is that he is, is. And he is the only is. So if you think you is, then you're obviously not acknowledging God. In other words, if you feel that you are other than him, then you're not getting him. You're not aware of him. If you're aware of him, you melt because he is the reality of everything. So as long as he's concealed and hidden and he's imparting isism, what I mean isism, beingness, when he is imparting existence to us, but in a way that he is remaining anonymous and hidden, then no problem. He's hidden, we are. But when he unveils himself, removes the cover, and wants to be present and open, then what is he revealing? He's revealing his true beingness, which his true beingness is what's giving beingness to everything. And the moment you recognize that he is the beingness of everything, then you can't be. <laughs> so you have, to, you have to dissolve in his existence. And that's the comparison to fire. Fire will only allow itself to be somewhere if you're willing to sacrifice. It wants a sacrifice, or else it can't be there. So God too says, listen here, if you want me to be visible, you got to surrender to me. you got to surrender your beingness to me. you got to make space for me. So this is why the, one of the great Hasidic masters, Rabbi Nacha Mendel of Kotsk, one of the great, great, great Hasidic masters in Poland, 
the, the grandfather of the Kotzka dynasty, which includes Gur and other, other Hasidism, the Polish Hasidim. Um, one said, you know, when he, he asked the Hasidim, where is God? And everybody said, God is everywhere. He's up there, he's down here. And the Kutzker said, no, no. And they were baffled. What do you mean? How can you say God is... Zohar says there's no place devoid of him. And Remendel was known for his extreme... Remendel Kutzker, known as extreme sharpness. And after they were like completely lost, they all tried to give answers and explanations. And he gave his, his answer. And he said, God is wherever you let him in. To make space for him. To make space for God means you have to clear space. So if you want God to be inside of you, you have to clear your ego, your sense of beingness and presence so that he can, he can reveal himself. And then it's him, not you. <laughs> so how can you exist together with God? Only if you're part of him. And how can you be part of him when you dissolve your ego? And your existence is not about you, but about God. The problem Ripshner Zalman of Liadi says that even if we're very inspired, and even if we're really, really people that are ready to sacrifice, as we're willing to give up on our ego, we're willing to like really surrender the I am and the I need and the I want and that I am important and I, me, 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 me. And we're willing to let God in and say, it's God what you want, what you're interested in. We can't free ourselves from the last tiny little, little vestige of I. Some little bit of self will always be retained. That's why he says, even the greatest saintly person, a tzaddik, a very, very holy being, who is a super being, super, who loves God with a burning love and a burning passion, fired up his whole life, his or her life is only about serving the Korea, no personal desires at once. But the very fact that they have a desire to cleave to God means that there's a sense of self. There is something other than God. There's only God who's desiring. If they're so identified with God that they don't exist, that there's no passion, there's no desire, there's nobody there. It's in a sense almost like you've been obliterated. You don't exist. Only God. And being that you're not that way, you are a saintly being. So the very definition of being a saintly being requires a certain you. And that you is already... A contradiction to God's oneness that He is and there's none but Him. And that means that there might not be a thick wall over here that's blocking God, might not even be a thin world wallpaper, but a very, very thin, tiny little membrane of beingness is blocking the full manifestation of God's truth. A film, a very thin film of somethingness. So there is God and there's something else. And the fact that there's something else means it's not God. Because God's truth is that He is and there's none but Him. That's why Rav Shneer Zalman says the soul of the tzaddik, the soul even of the most righteous person, cannot serve as fuel. Because the fuel means something that utterly surrenders itself in the fire and without holding on to the tiniest trace of self. So what do you need in order to create that space? You need to do a mitzvah. Because a mitzvah is not about you. A mitzvah is not you. What's a mitzvah? A mitzvah is a, an act in your space that's being, that's being called for 
asked for, motivated by, and driven by God. The main idea of a mitzvah is God commanded. That's the, that, that's the energy of a mitzvah. God commanded. Now, even though you're doing, but when you're doing it, it's, it's not because of you. It's because of God. God commanded. Here is a full surrender. In the action of the mitzvah, there is a complete surrender. There is no self. Now, it's possible that while you're doing the mitzvah, not in the space of the act, but right next to that space or, under, or around that space, there is some kind of a motivation of self. Because you can be thinking that you're doing the mitzvah because you want something for yourself. You're thinking how this mitzvah is benefiting you. You can even do the mitzvah for ulterior motives. Which means you're doing the mitzvah to, to everybody should know that you're a nice guy and you're giving charity. It's not, much, it's not that much about God, but, but, but bottom line, you're doing God's commandment. In as much as it's God's commandment, it's God, not us. And if it's God's, not us, within the human experience, there is a little entranceway where there can be only God and no one else. And that is this act that's completely surrendered to God. I mean, the Rishnir Zalman of Liyadi explains it in a very, very deep philosophical explanation. It's too much for, to, for today's class. But um, how that happens exactly in a mitzvah. But that's why he says the mitzvah is the fuel. So now we understand a little bit why through doing learning Torah and doing mitzvahs, the soul experiences an enormous upgrade. Because as long as the soul is a soul, even when it's highly spiritual, as we said before, there are souls that are blazing and burning with spiritual ecstasy and desire, even without the mitzvah. But because there is ecstasy and desire even for that, even that desire and that longing and that want, that's still maintaining somewhat of an identity, somewhat of a space that's not utterly one with, with the infinite, not utterly one with God. An action of a commandment picks you up outside of yourself completely and allows God to be in you and in your limbs and in your body, and God is now channeling through you. Because this is his action being fulfilled through your body, through your soul and through your body. At this moment, you're just acting on behalf of God. It's almost as you're lending your hands and feet and mind and heart and sinews, blood vessels, blood and whatever else, nerves and everything that belongs to you. You're lending it to God, surrendering it to God for a godly action to be done in this world. At this moment, you have no beingness. So God, the flame, is right now revealing itself inside of you. Now, if you do mitzvahs continuously through your life, you're managing to keep that flame of the divine revealed inside your consciousness, inside your being continuously. The moment you stop doing a mitzvah, and you're, which means acting, doing something on behalf of God's impetus on his request, and you're engaging, I'm not talking about playing poker or, 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 or watching television or, or, or eating a, a hot dog. I'm not talking about that. That, of course, you're not doing that. You're engaging right now in deep longing. You're singing your favorite song and you're longing for God. You're longing to experience the infinite. But at this moment, you drop down from Him, from being Him, to being you longing for Him. The moment there is you longing for him, it's back to you. So you're within, 
within the, the tininess of a finite being. Oh my, an awesome finite being. A finite being that recognizes the infinite and is willing to give everything for the infinite, but you're still yourself. You're still within the parameters of a being outside of God. You can't be the flame. Now, after this is, has been said, the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, explains, and this was going to be the main part of today's share, today's class, seven levels. This is awesome. Seven levels of, mitz, of, of, of attaching and cleaving to God. Each one higher than the next in terms of how deep the submission, how deep the identification is. In other words, a journey of what? And this is such a crazy thing. It sounds so ridiculous, but it's so deep and it's so rich. A journey of deeper levels of self-transcendence. In other words, deeper levels of not existing. Of being able to live in a state of non-existence. So you don't exist because you're not busy with yourself. You transcended yourself. But in each level, he shows how on, on a very, very subtle way, in the most subtlest of subtlest ways, there's still another little bit of self there. And, and now you reach even a higher level. And it's way beyond. He's saying, wow, it can't be anything greater than this. You're so surrendered. You're so identified. You're in a, if you really put it on the microscope, there's still a tiny little vestige of self there that is still somethingness that's still blocking God. So then he explains on a higher level. He goes through seven levels. And when we reach the seventh level, we've gone through a journey of becoming nothing. At the time you reach that level, you're nothing Sheba nothing. You're the nothing of nothingness. You have nothing left of existence. I'll, I'll give you a little, a little... You're not even a servant of God because if you're a servant then there is, a ser there, there is something special over here. There is a servant. You reach a point that the only thing that's there is the service, not even the servant. You don't even feel that you're a servant. There is no, there's no servant. Let alone there's no, pat, no, no, there's no want and desire for anything for yourself, but there's not even a service. There's not even a servant. There's only a service. I mean, your entire consciousness is just the service. What God wants, God done. Not that you're doing it, not that you're a servant. It's just that it got done. And that's what he explains the highest level. It's a, it's a level where there is zero self. Zero self. Reach a point where there's nothing left of yourself. And that's the ultimate attachment. That's the ultimate way of doing a mitzvah. And that's the real inner, inner essence of, of, of being a conduit, of being an expression of the divine, which is what Judaism is all about. Judaism is not about being somebody. It's about being not about a complete transcendence of self to the nothingness. And yet, being a living human being in the physical world, engaged in everything physical, and living in a state of complete oneness with... with, with, with. And therefore, the service has no personal motive and no gain. The main, now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop because I, I really want to do a part two to this class because I, I think that the, these seven levels need to be ex explained, each one. And I'm not that long. I need another half an hour, 45 minutes, but I don't want to extend this class so long because I'm afraid I'm going to rush 
and I'm not going to give it its right, proper respect. So I'd like to continue this with a part two. But what I do want to tell you is that the beauty of where the Rebbe goes with this and his teaching, the amazing teaching, is that, and this, this, is like, this is like the punchline of the whole thing, is that when one reaches a purity of motive so deep that there's nothing left of self to the point of non-beingness and that the complete service is just the service, not even you, not even that you're doing it, not even that you want to be connected, not even that you want that God should be satisfied. It's not even that. There's nothing there. It's just His will. There's nothing there of you. It's just His will being done. So we would think that that's the ultimate depression. We would think that at that point you can't have any motivation. If, if there's no me at all, not even a spiritual, nothing, so if there's absolute nothingness, why in heaven's name would I have any inspiration or any desire? Definitely not joy and happiness. I'm talking about a complete obliteration of existence. Who wants, who enjoys obliteration? We enjoy expansion. We enjoy beingness, not not being. And now, not only are you not being, but now you're not, not, not being. Now you're so not that you reach the peak of not being. And therefore what? Therefore, the Rebbe says it's time to throw a party. Because he explains that it's only when you reach such a point of utter non-existence because you've become so swallowed up in the existence of God that you have zero existence even. Right? It's only then when real joy kicks in. Because the real truth of the soul is that the soul and God are absolutely one. Soul of the Jewish people is one with God. And in its core, in its nucleus, the moment the soul emanates and comes forth to begin its journey down to a body, it could be for thousands of years until it gets to the body, you know, whenever, you know, the soul begins its journey out, it assumes an identity, it assumes somewhat of a being. And it's always really in truth yearning for the non-existence which it once existed in when it was not in any way an identifiable existence. It just is him. And therefore, as much as we think, and that's the natural opposite of our psychology, we think that the more we will be, the more we will have, the more we will expand, the more it will... The, the happier we are because the, it's, 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 it's great to be and it's great to have and to have more fulfillment and more fulfillment and more fulfillment. That might be true in the psyche of other human beings, not the psyche of the Jew. The inner psyche. I'm not saying we can have ego as well and Jews can have all, all the blockages and all the stuff. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking at the very, very core what makes the Jew Jewish and that unique, supreme, godly soul that's there with it, the essence of the soul. It celebrates not in beingness, but in non-beingness. It works opposite than any other existence and any other creature and any entity. And only when it frees itself from any form, even the tiniest form of somethingness, only when it can free itself completely to the point that there's nothing left of its, of its own separate existence. And now it's just God's will. Nothing else. Over there is where there is pleasure. Over there is where there is joy. 
obviously it's your joy and God's joy as one because there's no identifiable being other than Hashem. But what does that mean? Even, even It doesn't mean you die doing that. You're living that way. You're living and doing mitzvahs that way with such a deep level of identification with, with your source. You can be a servant on this level. Be a godly being on this level. And have such joy and energy. And I mean, we would think that if there's nothing in it for you, nothing, zero, even not that you're wearing the badge that you are the servant of God, because it's as if you don't exist. It's just a service without you. But the service is being done without even you being there to do it. And yet it's only in that that the real energy and the real joy and that's the deeper meaning of the verse that the Medrash says. We said earlier, if you will observe my candle, I will observe your candle. The Rebbe learns that the observance of the candle means that you can, God is saying, I will keep you, I will reveal your beingness in your non-beingness. In other words, as you become utterly not, and therefore you become utterly me, this will not, this does not mean you, 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 you've, you've been deleted. Quite on the contrary, since me and you are one, in your non-beingness you are. <laughs> I'm, I'm protecting your candle. Your candle is now burning inside of me, inside this infinite fire. And yet your candle is still you. <laughs> While it's not. And it's precisely because it's not a separate candle. It's inside the greater infinite fire, and yet it's you. And simply that means that we can be joyous and happy. It's this energy, going back to what I started the class with, it's this energy of transparency and of deeper transparency. Because what we're really talking about over here is different levels of transparent, of moving past self, deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. To the point that there is no self at all. And when there is no self, then God is coming through. It's this powerful transparency which is unique to Israel and the Jewish people. So if you love God, when you're looking at Israel and the Jewish people, you're looking through the cleanest window. You're looking at God. Because I'm not saying you're looking at God. Yeah, because you are. Yeah, because there is, a, there is the soul. I'm not talking about... Most people are not conscious of this. Most people saying even, even observant Jews and even, even big rabbis. But, but this is the truth of the soul. That's what I'm saying. And therefore, when you're looking, there is a complete clean window. If it's attractive to you, there is a love for God. However, an entity, a being, and it's so full of themselves, so full of ego, so full of self-importance. When you're facing somebody that's contradicting that self and, and claiming beingness and wants to be other than God and doesn't want to accept a truth that God is and he's the is of everything and the beingness of everything and can't stand that because that's kind of a refutation of their own beingness, they will hate a Jew with such a hatred. And that's the illogical, irrational, 
complete insane hatred to the Jewish people. I can't stand seeing someone surrender to God. Because I am. I am such an inflated self. I am so into my own being that when I'm looking at non-beingness and therefore staring at true existence, I can't stand it. And being that you remind me of true beingness and infinite and the true, true beingness of beingness, I have to do whatever I can to obliterate you because I don't want any reminders of that. Ego cannot stand transparency and selflessness and self-abnegation. And being that we're, as we mentioned in the beginning of the class, we're coming right to the time of Mashiach. When true existence is going to be revealed all over the world. So those who are responsible for Mashiach, those that are responsible for this great messianic revelation, that's a result of all the mitzvot that have been done, are being hated for one last time. Just for a few moments, until the revelation will come. So fortunate are the ones who don't hate and embrace, and unfortunate are those who do hate. But again, as I said in the beginning, and go bang your head in the wall from today till tomorrow won't help you. Because the Jewish people are meant to stay. And we will be here forever and ever. Happily and joyfully. With all of humanity for the ultimate party. An ultimate revelation of true existence of Hashem Achad Achad. So with Hashem's help Right, we'll come back and do a short addition to this class going through the various different levels of possible service until we reach the deepest point of motivation and inspiration in serving God that is the ultimate Jewish way of doing a mitzvah. So Ezra Tashem will get to that as well. Thank you so much.